Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. This is The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. Water takes center stage this week as experts gather for the Pacific Water Conference. We'll talk about different solutions to reduce wastewater pollution across the state. We have survey results from a University of Hawaii study on rising sea levels and the political appetite to take action. And did you know it's Humpback Whale Awareness Month? We'll talk to a couple of whale experts about how we can help protect our winter visitors from ocean hazards. And traffic cameras, do they help? On the long view, we get a snapshot of how well they work in cities across the country. It is Wednesday, February 21st. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This week, the Environmental Protection Agency announced it will provide $50 million for Hawaii. It will go towards upgrading infrastructure related to clean water. We're talking drinking water, storm drains, and wastewater. The announcement comes just as close to 1,000 water experts are gathered at the Hawaii Convention Center for the Pacific Water Conference. Stuart Coleman is head of VI, which stands for Wastewater Alternatives and Innovations. We talked to him about why these issues are high on the priority list. It's timely because, you know, after the fires in Lahaina last August, we are really pushing for reuse of treated wastewater for, you know, beneficial purposes like irrigation of green belts and fire prevention. And so it's a really interesting story because it goes all the way back to the Lahaina injection wells case. And for our listeners who are not familiar with that, what is that all about? Yeah, so when I was working with the Surfrider Foundation, we were part of a coalition of groups with Earth Justice that had sued uh, the county of Maui because they were injecting all their um, wastewater into injection wells. And we were showing them and trying to explain, we didn't want to litigate at all, that all that wastewater and the nutrients in it goes into the ground and just percolates into the ocean. And so the coral reefs had been declining near there in Lahaina. And, you know, there were all kinds of effects that we were trying to show them that this isn't direct transport, but it is definitely indirect transport to the coast. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And we won at every level. And the whole time, all we were saying is we don't want to litigate. We just want for you to reuse the water. So our motto was redirect, don't inject. And one of the things we had really asked them was to the former administration was to use it for fire prevention, use this treated wastewater for that. And so now going forward, we just think that's such an important thing that needs to happen because we're only going to have more increased risk of fires. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, as we start to plan ahead to avoid another wildfire like this, it's like, what are the solutions and how can we use that wastewater to help save lives, really? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's there's all kinds of technology that we're working with that, you know, one of the major sources that you have all this former sugarcane land um, that's barren and laying fallow, but you have all these invasive grasses that are growing up and they're so um, prone to fire. Um, And so there are two things. One of those is you can burn those and turn that all that, you know, invasive weeds and um, fire fuel into biochar through pyrolysis. And then it becomes biochar has a, you know, a fire preventative capacity and it's a carbon sink. And you're helping, you know, regenerate and get those minerals into the ground. So it's also a soil amendment. Um, and then the second thing is using the water to just keep the ground moist and, and not so dry. And I know that, you know, you're a big advocate of getting people off cesspools and onto more environmentally friendly systems. And as part of the Lahaina Recovery Plan, right, they are trying to do just that, um, you know, get people off those old systems. And I know the mayor, you know, uh, says that this is all part of the federal money because we've got to do this. We've got a deadline that's looming. Exactly. And, you know, we have a window 
the slowly closing, you know, potentially closing, especially if there are any you know, changes in the administration where they've offered more money, infrastructure money, for water and wastewater systems pretty much in the history of the country. And so, you know, Hawaii, I think, really needs to step up as a state to access that money because some of it is just given to each state, but a large portion of it is, you know, has to be applied for. And so there are all kinds of new grants that are coming out from the EPA, community change grants and closing the wastewater access gap that we are really, you know, uh, we have a lot of potential to get those grants and bring that federal money to Hawaii and help the homeowners with the cost of conversion instead of doing each cesspool one by one with 83,000 of them across the state, that's going to be very expensive and very, you know, we just don't have the the, the people to do that, the amount of engineers and contractors. But if we do them in decentralized systems, then we can reuse that water for beneficial purposes. Yeah, uh, so much we can tap. We just need to marshal the forces. Uh, you know, And I know that there's a, a number of programs under the infrastructure bill, too, I think, right? Yes, exactly. Under the bipartisan infrastructure law and then under the Inflation Reduction Act. And then all those is kind of part of the Justice 40 initiative. So with the higher levels of you know native Hawaiian populations here, especially in rural areas and low to moderate income areas, there's just the perfect target to bring in federal funding. And, you know, at one time we were talking about a company on the Big Island, I think that was at Nelha, that was trying to create some uh, septic tanks so we could actually, you know, build them here produce them here and not have to worry about shipping all these large things in and adding to the cost of, of uh, switching over. Yes. And that's, I think that's ongoing They're They found that they're better for catchment systems, that they weren't sure they could make them thick enough and strong enough to go in the ground, you know, to withstand all that pressure, the earth all around it. But yeah, there are better technologies available. And so we have to find a way a clearer path with the Department of Health and the wastewater branch to introduce those new technologies to Hawaii, you know, because they're nature-based systems that, you know, one of the biggest things that has changed in, you know, since we last spoke is that there was a huge paper that came out um, in the publication Nature, one of the most prominent publications in the science um, and conservation world, showing that the uh, nitrogen and the phosphorus and the nutrients in wastewater are killing our coral reefs. And so that just really gave us all the scientific, scientific data that we need to say, okay, we've got to stop using cesspools. This is urgent because a number of scientists saying there are a lot of coral reefs that aren't going to make it till 2050, the mandatory deadline. Uh, and so we, we, there's an urgency now with the fires in Lahaina and the decline, the rapid decline of our coral reefs in some areas. You know, I was just reading something about the number of tumors uh, on turtles is is way down. And, uh, you know, they were just wondering, you know, what is that all about? And was it linked to some of those problems with the wastewater over there in Maui? So it'd be interesting to, to find that out. But yeah, lots of, you know, we're all connected, right? Exactly. Uh, that those interconnections are super important. So sometimes this is a problem, you know, you flush and forget all of these things are underground. And so people say, oh, you know, what's the problem with cesspool? Really? We've had them for decades, no problem. Well, if you look at places like Malai on Maui or Puako on the Big Island, their reef cover has gone from 70 to 80% 50 years ago to less than 8% now. I mean, that's a massive Decline. So even with the, ma- the big funding that we have to do coral reef restoration, some of the people leading this, Dr. Greg Asner, are saying some of those coral reefs are so degraded that we can't even rebuild on them. And so what does that mean for everyone? You know, like people who don't go in the ocean, it's that's our protection. This is an existential threat as well as an economic and environmental threat because that protects us from storm surges, tsunamis, hurricanes, king tides and major flooding events. So these are, we're talking, you know, the reefs are worth billions and billions of dollars to our economy. 
each year, um, scientists have evaluated through recreation, seafood, and all the tourism industry. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a really significant threat. Anything else uh, that's on tap for the conference? There are going to be uh, a lot of great speakers and tech providers from around the country. And so it's nice that we're part of this, you know, national network and that we get to share ideas and hopefully bring many of those ideas and services to Hawaii. So that'll be fun. Any final thoughts, you know, as waterways on our mind? Yes. There are a lot of bills at the legislature this year and the cesspool conversion working group, you know, finished handing its report, its final report in 2022. Not much was, anything was done last year. So we're really hoping that this is the year we will get something done, get funding for homeowners to help them with the conversion, do education and outreach and pilot projects to really get this process going. Because the silver lining, Catherine, is that this is a, it's going to be an economic stimulus. These are mom and pop companies that can form around this, and we're going to have to increase our workforce dramatically. So we've got funding and we're doing training for workforce development through our Work for Water program. And that's been very successful. There's a lot of interest. And we just are graduating, you know, like about 40 students at a time in our two cohorts. Yeah, so I mean, really exciting. Yeah, we, I mean, we do need to create the labor market out there in order to meet these goals. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that can be a real benefit because you're not going to get the boom and bust cycles of the tourism industry and sometimes the construction industry. This is really steady work well-paying jobs, and they will go on indefinitely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Stuart. We appreciate you carving uh, time out for us. My pleasure. It's always great talking with you, Catherine, and look forward to hearing the show. That was by Executive Director Stuart Coleman talking about the largest gathering of water experts in Honolulu this week. The Pacific Water Conference opened uh, today with news that Hawaii will see $50 million in federal funding to help with drinking water and clean water infrastructure. HBR is hiring for a full-time membership manager. Are you experienced in nonprofit fundraising? A public radio superfan? This is the job opportunity for you. Join HBR's growing and passionate team. Apply by March 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org/jobs. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dowling Family Charitable Fund. Dowling Company, for more than three decades working to develop housing projects for the Maui community and committed to building in balance. And HPR supporters since 2001. The threat of rising sea levels may be real, but a recent survey of policymakers suggests a sense of urgency is not shared across the board. HPR reporter Savannah Harriman-Pote joins us to talk about the findings. Good morning, Savannah. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so tell us about this study. Uh, who's behind it? Yeah, so it was put together by UH, UH researchers Ketty Loeb and Colin Moore, and they conducted a survey of elected officials at the state and county level and released the results of this survey in December of 2023, so just as we're preparing for the current legislative session. And they wanted to fill a gap. They said there's a lot of survey data on climate change, but not a whole lot of info specific to sea level rise. And here's Colin with the big picture takeaway from their survey findings. In some ways, it's encouraging for folks who are worried about sea level rise because all of our respondents believed it is happening. Um, they believe that uh, the consequences are going to be significant or catastrophic in the next 50 years. Um, but at the same time, and I think this is you know really the, the key takeaway of this survey, um, 
nobody thinks the state of Hawaii is well prepared or even moderately prepared for its impacts. And despite the fact that they all agree that this is a major concern, um, only about 9% of our respondents ranked it as a top priority. Um, 44% placed it high on their list. But you know, the, 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 the point here is, is that our elected officials see this as potentially catastrophic. Um, they think their constituents are going to see the effects soon, yet it's still not quite a top priority. So it's a let's wait and see. Yeah. And I did ask, you know, what's the difference between a top priority and a high priority? And Ketty Loeb and Colin Moore said that's a little bit self-defined, but we really are looking for the level of urgency officials have to match what they're identifying as the risk. Um, and there were a couple of other things that Ketty and Colin want viewers to take into account when they're considering these surveys results. One is that they sent the survey to all 110 elected officials at the Hawaii State Legislature and then at all four county councils. And they heard back from 32 of them. So here's Colin talking about that response rate. Doing a survey of elected officials is very difficult, um, especially a complicated one like this that asks them to weigh in on a bunch of different policy choices. Um, so we have a response rate of 29%. That's all, that's the combined uh, state legislators and county councils. Th that might seem a little bit low, but it's actually quite a bit above the average response rate. That's about 21% for these sorts of surveys of political elites. Though that's all to say that um, you know you should interpret these results with with some caution. Um, you know, I expect that probably the the legislators that responded are already more concerned about sea level rise than the median member of their of of their elected body. Um, and they might tend to be a little bit more on the progressive side. Yeah, but that's, you know, um, quite a bit below 50% even, 29. Mm. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. They are considering making this part of a longitudinal study, so asking in multiple years to see how opinions change. But again, all responses are voluntary, and there were just certain folks that did not choose to participate in the survey. The responses are anonymous, but Colin Moore and Kitty Loeb did note that, for instance, no Republican um, members of the state legislature chose to participate in the study. Hmm. They also noted that they were collecting responses between July and September of 2023. And of course, we had the fires in August in Lahaina. So one, that could have taken lawmakers focus away from this survey, um, it also could have changed their priorities. So suddenly when you're faced with a catastrophe, what you, the next and most important thing that you need to do does change. Right. So they're focused on fire, not so much water. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the survey does have a lot of really good information in it. And in part, it digs into what sort of policies lawmakers support and don't support. So there's strong consensus in certain areas, for instance, using public funds to floodproof critical, critical infrastructure and utilities, and also creating what are called living shorelines, which is really just building out the natural environment and planting natural species to act as kind of buffer zones to erosion and to developed areas. But lawmakers were more divided on other strategies, especially on using public funds to pay property owners in vulnerable areas to vacate their homes. Though Kenny did point out that lawmakers might be more in favor of this policy in very specific instances. There was an interesting, though, divergence between, you know, just uh, carte blanche, creating buyout systems for all homeowners uh, compared to this notion that there might be a more nuanced approach to doing that. Um, there was a lot more support for the use of government uh, spending to help the most vulnerable property owners vacate their homes and not to subsidize the wealthy. Yeah, that that's, you know, interesting, you know, when you start getting into like managed retreat because that can get very expensive. Absolutely. Colin Moore did note that managed retreat of this kind is one of the things that we know more about, whereas those other policies that are more popular, we don't really have a lot of information on how much those will cost. So we're, we're likely to see costs associated, significant costs associated with those as well. It's just a very, very expensive problem. I'm just curious, like, uh, 
of the bills that are um, bopping around at the legislature, are there, you know, a number of them that deal with sea level rise this year? Well, there's only a handful of bills that are tackling sea level rise this year. And again, it is kind of an exceptional year because so much attention is being paid to the very necessary recovery in Lahaina. But there are a couple that we talked about. One is House Bill 1545. And so that'll expand the authority of the state and counties to look at adaptation pathways, plans um, to relocate some of this infrastructure away from critically, critically threatened areas. Votes are really in agreement that we need to identify our critical utilities, our critical roads, and make sure that those are in safe spaces. And there's another Senate bill, 3060, that's gonna require the Office of Planning and Sustainable Development to develop and publish a statewide climate adaptation and resilience implementation plan. And that would include provisions for how we're gonna deal with sea level rise. And what Ketty observed is that about our policy moment is that we're really in the planning stage still. We're really at the beginning. We're really just at the the point where um, you know we're starting to get coastal maps, um, thanks to the work of um, the folks at University of Hawaii and NOAA who are doing geological and coastal mapping. Um, but we need to do a lot more work around. Okay, so what does it cost to? Uh, rebuild natural coastlines or raise infrastructure or relocate infrastructure. We don't have that basic information about costs because we're still figuring out what options are on the table. So the legislation you're seeing, well, you'll, you'll see some that are um, more specific. Um, a lot of the policies that, that we're seeing in recent years are just about getting basic plans in place and doing basic research to inform policy creation. Yeah, so I guess we'll see how uh, well these bills, these bills fare um, as we make our way through the session. Absolutely. Both of the bills I mentioned are still on the move, so they're making their way through House and Senate hearings, respectively. And we'll, we'll just see what happens as the legislation, legislation goes on. It's a very strained year in terms of budgetary appropriations. Um, so it's definitely something that's going to be a bit of a struggle. Um, for folks who are interested in this research, Dr. Ketty Loeb is giving a talk today at 3 p.m. on this research on the full findings of the report. And you can attend that talk in person or online. And there's more information on hawaiipublicradio.org. All right. Well, thanks so much, Savannah. Thank you. We've been talking to HR Savannah Harriman-Pote about a recent University of Hawaii survey on sea level rise. As many as a third of U.S. families are affected by addiction. Some now in recovery say family support, not punishment, was key. I decided in that moment, it's time to step up and give this family, you know, a reason to hang on. I'm Deborah Becker. Why some families are doing away with tough love. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Aloha, I'm Bert Lum. If you're interested in science, technology, and Hawaii's innovation economy, tune in to Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio HPR1 today at 6.30 p.m. You know, this past Sunday marked World Whale Day, and on Maui, events included a whale parade and a festival. There's also a Race for Whales virtual fundraiser, which is underway now. World Whale Day was started back in Maui in 1980 by the late Greg Kaufman of the Pacific Whale Foundation. Its goal was to draw attention to these magnificent creatures and the dangers they encounter with net entanglements and boat strikes. We talked to the Foundation's lead scientist, Jens Curry, as well as Ed Lyman of the Humpback Whale Marine Mammal Sanctuary about these hazards. 
we pulled together the boating community. We pulled together a variety of researchers working in Hawaii and looked at all of the latest and greatest data we have available that's looking at human-caused impacts to humpback whales, both here locally in Hawaii, so research done here in Hawaii, but also research that's done in other areas that may be comparable to help develop the best practices for the on-water community when they happen to be out during whale season. And so uh, drawing on all that research and looking at what is feasible for the boating community to adopt as voluntary guidelines, we came up with two main recommendations uh, beyond what is the federal approach limit of 100 yards. Uh, The first of those is if you're transiting through the waters during humpback whale season, just slow down. Slower is better. And if you'd like to shoot for a speed, we say don't go above 15 knots or the planning speed of your vessel. Any bit slower than 15 knots, 15 knots is that much better to reduce the likelihood of collision and the severity of the collision if you do have one. So just go slow, whales are below, and that's the name of the campaign. Go slow, whales Whale. are below. Nice. Go slow, whales below, yeah. Uh, the second part is if you want to do some whale watching, uh, how you approach that whale matters, uh, not just in terms of how close you get, but how you approach it uh, well beyond the 100-yard approach limit. And so uh, we're asking vessels to slow down to six knots or less when they're within 400 yards of a humpback whale and planning to approach the humpback whale. We do this because your vessel makes noise, and so when you're traveling at that lower speed, the acoustic impact of the noise your vessel emits fairly low and and thought to be similar to what is the noise level in the environment anyway, and therefore you're not having that additional impact when you might be cruising in a little bit too fast and your engines are a little louder, and then you may cause a change in behavior at that humpback whale. And so this is really focused about uh, whales and their behaviors because this is a breeding ground and nursing ground, and so we have really important life history traits happening here. And we don't want to have the whale watching community alter that behavior because that can have impact on the health of individuals and the population. Ed, jump in here. Give us a snapshot of uh, our whale population. If I may, just add one thing to what Jens was just talking about, and that, you know, the slower speed coming in and moving away from the whales on that directed approaching your whale watching. And that is, it gives the whales and the operators more time to reduce those, those contacts between them as well. And especially moving away from the animals. You've had your back to everything else. You've been focused on the crew, has been focused on maybe that group of whales are watching for 10 or 15 minutes. Now you don't have that image of all the other whales around you. And just this week we had a report of a ship strike, uh, whale vessel contact, that was just that scenario. So what Jens was just talking about, that you know going slower on the approaches and, and, and as you leave those directed a Approaches. That's one aspect of trying to reduce or mitigate this threat. And and then you wanted me to, to refer to the overall status? Yes, yes. Yeah. So what's the snapshot yeah. of our whales coming and going this season? In general, if we take the big picture, they're doing well. When you compare it to 30, 40, 50 years ago, the trend has been population increase with all the different protective protection measures that Jens and I are talking about, as well as others, like if you go back far enough, you know, no hunting. Um, however, those threats still lie there. We're here we are talking about mostly the whale vessel contacts, which we've mentioned um, entanglement. We've got climate change and how they affect these different threats as well. So there are still some threats there, and it is impacting the population still. But overall, in the big picture, the numbers are much higher, much better than they've been in the overall past. Well, you know, I was web surfing this morning and happened to see uh, a thing about minimizing whale entanglements, and it was by the, a group out of Oregon, and they were saying that the National Marine Fisheries Service was noting an increase in whale entanglements since 2014. Indeed, and, and I would say the same, in general, the same holds here. Part of that is, you know, we were just, I was just referring to the population increase. Some of that is um, the larger number of animals out there, and then the effort. You know, um, what we're doing here today is, is trying to get the word out there. You know, we all have a responsibility. We all have an impact to the animals when we're on the water. We're sharing that environment with them. But we have this responsibility to, to be, you know, Kuliana, to be better mariners, uh, share that environment appropriately with the animals and reduce those threats uh, overall. So, 
the, the outreach and education, the effort is part of that equation as well. And then we tease out, is the threat itself, independent of those two variables, also an increase? Yeah, I mean, I can see if there are more whales and there's more likelihood of a problem, either, you know, a boat right. strike or right. entanglement. Right, nature, yeah. But, you know, I am yep. just amazed when we do stories about how, you know, there's a lot of marine debris out there. And when these fisher folks, you know, help out and they bring in this debris to shore, it is stunning to see the volume of, you know, exactly. the nets that are floating out there. In the big picture, the gear lasts longer, is much stronger, and that's a big deal. I mean, it used to be, you know, used Manoa lines and things like that, I mean, small break, you know, poly, even the polypropylenes, even when plastics came along, the first lines were fairly weak. The whales could, the large whales could deal with them. But these polyblend lines, so there's a, this, these different variables are much stronger, and they, they last a long time. We had a big response yesterday, and uh, Entangled Whale, I mean, it was like the fifth time we were trying to cut it free, and um, kind of wore me out a little bit, but we, we just missed it again. We couldn't get, get a knife on the line. Oh, um, this is just off Maui? Just off Maui, yeah. Oh, gosh. Jans, you know, I think we saw a lot of cases last year, I think, as well, during whale watching season. It, but the same kind of s- scenario, right? Someone alerts authorities like, hey, there's a whale in trouble. And then you folks go out there to try and help. And sometimes you find it and sometimes you don't. Yeah, I mean, um, and just to share a positive note, we, we did have a response. I believe it was last year. We were on the research vessel collaborating with the Marine Mammal Research Program. And we spotted a whale. Um, and Ed and his team were in close by, I believe, maybe in the harbor or uh, on the water. Uh, but they were able to get on scene within 30 minutes and had a bit of luck on their side as well. And Ed was able to make a, a cut from, from the response vessel and, and freed that animal within a couple of hours of reporting it. So, you know, there's a lot of factors at play, and we always hope for a positive response. And, and this was a nice one where uh, we were able to get that whale free and give it a chance to, to recover. Well, you know, about a month ago, there was a baby whale that was in distress, and many folks who were trying to help were very upset when uh, a woman tried to jump on the back of this poor baby whale. You know, I don't know what the upshot was, what the fisheries enforcement folks did, but, you know, that's just, like, not right. I would agree. Definitely agree. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, humpback whales, calves here in Hawaii rely solely uh, on their uh, mothers for energy. So that fatty, rich milk they get from mom is the only sustenance they get here in Hawaii. And so they're on a really tight budget already for energy. And so any additional energy they expend, like they would need to if they were pulling around a human, is it, severely impactful to those calves. And so that's why that was uh, definitely not the right thing to do. The outlook for that calf probably wasn't great, given that mom was nowhere to be found. However, they are resilient and they can survive um, for a little bit of time without mom. Um, but without that, that mom to nourish it, it definitely uh, didn't have a great outlook. Yeah, and we don't know the outcome of that uh, calf, that whale calf. Uh, but, you know, these days, you know, we hear a lot about critter cams. And I don't know what research you folks are involved in. You know, uh, do you have any cameras or satellite tags on whales um, that can help? give us a glimpse into, you know, their migration? So what folks are using today, it's kind of the upgrade from the critter cam is, is what they call a CATS tag. That's a customized animal tracking solution. What CATS stands for is attached via suction cups, and it provides high-resolution short-term data, and it includes that video feed that, you know, the critter cams were known for. But in addition to that, it collects acoustic data, so it has hydrophones on board, and it also collects uh, precise accelerometer data, so you know exactly the orientation of the whale, how fast it's swimming, and you get a really fine-scale look into short-term behaviors of whales here in Hawaii. They generally only stay on for 5, 8, if you're lucky, up to 12 hours, so it's providing that short-term glimpse into the animal's life uh, when it's under the surface. So we as researchers largely can only study them when they're at the surface, we are not using any satellite tags, which provide that long-term data that would be helpful for migration. But I know Ed and his team have collaborated on that as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, in the long term, we've just helped other researchers that specialize that. And those are tags that are, you know, they're more 
they're implantable. They've got to be deep enough to hold on to that animal for a longer period of time. As Jens just said, with the cat's tag, those are suction cup tags, short-term, less invasive in that regard as well. But either way, you get a wealth of information. And I'll give you an example. Yesterday on the effort, on the response effort for that entangled whale, which, by the way, was very similar to the example that Jens gave you of, of last year, where he, you know, he called us up, did, you know, that responsibility of, of um, standing by and calling us up, and we were able to get back out there, work as a team, cut a male, ad, adult male humpback whale free with a loop around the head. This animal has a loop around the head. It actually involves the mouth, but very similar, and yet a different scenario this time. We're not so lucky, as uh, Jens mentioned. But yesterday, we did put a cat's tag on the entangled whale using a drone, so non-invasive, you know, it didn't affect our ability to cut the whale free, just flew the drone over. We needed to look at it anyway and just dropped this tag on the back of the whale. And it stayed on about three hours, three and a half hours uh, before it came off. And that'll give us, you know, the examples that Jens was talking about. It'll not only give us imagery, but in this case, the energetics. For a period of time, we'll have the, because of the accelerometer and everything, we're going to have its dive pattern and even its fluke beats of carrying that extra load, that that drag from the gear that that animal is carrying. So we have one little data point that will add over over time. Well, you know, I am just always so in awe of the whale songs. Do you have any experiences you'd like to share with our listeners uh, in about an encounter or just about the beautiful music they make? I'll just say that when uh, when I'm out there snorkeling or diving and I don't hear it, it's sad. It's it's kind of it's part. I mean, it's just part of their being here. And I'm not an expert on the song, so I probably won't go down that uh, path. But uh, it is a big part of their of uh, their life history and everything. Yeah, do you want to add anything? You know, if you, if you look at other whale species and adonisids, there's there's nothing that's comparable to the sound or the song of a humpback whale. And so it's always a, a great pleasure to to have it come every year here to Maui and, and be able to experience that by just walking into the beach and, and diving maybe 10, 15 feet down and, and you can hear it mm-hmm. or listening to it on a hydrophone from a vessel. There's, there's nothing quite like it. Nothing quite like it. That was uh, Jens Curry and Ed Lyman, who we talked to last week. They were highlighting a campaign to raise awareness as we celebrate Humpback Whale Awareness Month. Uh, There is a virtual race for whales fundraiser underway, and we'll have links on the conversation page of our website later today. If you've never heard the sound of humpback whales singing, we've got a song from a pod off the coast of Maui. When you support HPR, you support storytelling that illuminates understanding. Our obligation was to each other, and the unwritten rule was this. We all come back, or nobody comes back. My son was in the Air Force, and he's a wounded warrior. He was severely injured in Afghanistan at just the precious age of his early 20s. We hear stories that remind us of our humanity. This was something that happened as they say, a normal reaction to abnormal circumstances. My service in combat, my service in Vietnam, probably is a singular most event or experience that I had that put me on a path to where I am today. Help HPR uplift more community voices. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org. Hawaii's native sandpiper, or the akakeke, is the subject of this week's Manu Minute. These birds are a coastal foraging bird whose rattling call gives you a clue to their name with calls from the Mokale Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology and Xenocanto. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart. Akakeke, 
also known as ready turnstones when you're not in Hawaii, are medium-sized sandpipers. They're about the size of a mina bird. You can often see them foraging in small flocks, usually along rocky shorelines, but also in mud flats, fields, and lawns. Our birds in Hawaii are in their drab winter plumage, which includes mottled brown backs and white breasts with a very noticeable black bib pattern below their chin. Their bright orange legs set them apart from other shorebirds you might see. Also, if you look closely, you can see a slight upturn in their bills, which, as their English name implies, seems to help them turn over stones in search of insects and crustaceans. Their Hawaiian name, Akekeke, is similar to their call, which sounds a bit like kekekeke. See if you agree. By late April and May, you might notice that most akekeke have molted into their breeding plumage so they can be more attractive to the opposite sex. They have a beautiful black and ruddy or red-brown pattern of feathers on their backs and striking black and white patterns on their face and breast. Our akekeke make a non-stop migration across the northern Pacific to Alaska, a flight which likely takes them three to four days. Like many shorebirds, they spend the summer on breeding grounds high up in the Arctic to take advantage of abundant food resources during the long Arctic summers. The males and females arrive at about the same time, set up very exclusive territories in the tundra to keep out other akekeke, and they build their nest in a scrape on the ground. Both parents feed and care for up to four keiki in the nest, and if resources that summer are good, and they manage to escape predation by foxes or jaegers, the juveniles will get together in small flocks to make their first trip to Hawaii by late August, with most adults arriving a week or two before that. Our akekeke are considered to be an indigenous species, meaning that they're found naturally here as well as other parts of the world. The worldwide population size was recently estimated to be about a half a million birds, and unlike many of our other native bird species, populations of akekeke appear to be relatively stable. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Hawaii Audubon Society, connecting the community with the Manu Oku through programs to promote awareness, appreciation, and conservation of the official bird of Honolulu. Learn more at hiaudubon.org. got caught yet we're talking about getting caught on the traffic cameras that have been set up around town to catch red light speeders or runners and speeders it's a pilot project following the heels of those dreaded van cams our contributing editor neil milner is here for the long view good morning good morning i haven't been caught of you <laughs> no well i mean it's not easy getting caught considering how few cameras we have and that's another issue that we may be addressing in the future in Hawaii, and we may not, depending on the pilot program. But I was interested in um, uh, some information that has come through City Lab about how well or not well the speed camera program in New York City is, uh, is doing. Are they stopping people from speeding? It turns out this is of special relevance because of the legislature is here attempt to establish another kind of cam program that would be more than just a red light cam. So let me just first say what the New York study found because it's very important to follow up on this to see if it's true generally. So the New York the, the New York speed cam, traffic cam is very pervasive. They got a couple thousand, almost 3000 cameras around the greater New York City area. And so they have lots of experience with this by now. So there's a group at, New York, at NYU, a management, a traffic management institute that's been doing a study. 
Does it stop people from speeding? So they looked at all of these kinds of things, and it turns out that there's some very interesting and perplexing findings in this. On the, on the one hand, it, well, let me put it this way. Think of a Kalanianioli Highway speeder, where everybody does it, you go a little too fast, you might get caught, as opposed to someone who is a total violator, reckless driver. It turns out that the, that the speed cam has very different effects on each of those groups. For your average person who gets a speeding ticket or two, the data show that's about it. They don't get caught anymore. They're probably not speeding anymore. They've learned their lesson. Super speeders, people who are in this small category of very important ones, um, violators, they keep getting tickets. In fact, they get more and more tickets, even if they're caught. Uh, it doesn't seem to have any effect. These are pretty serious dudes. They're, they have average traffic fines of about $12,000. Uh, they're multiple violators. Maybe something close to that Mr. Miyashiro who killed the person, uh, Sarayaro. Yeah, Sarayaro. Yeah, Sarayaro. Yeah, so with those groups... They, it doesn't seem to make any difference. You keep giving them tickets, and they don't care anyway. So if you think about it, it's a very interesting kind of public policy thing. It's not simple at all. For your average occasional violator uh, speeding, uh, it seems to make a difference. For, for serious super speeders, that's a whole different ballgame, and they're not really sure how you deal with it. It's something like... Uh, what we know in some cities about crime, that very few criminals com um, do the large uh, number of crimes, that it's, again, it's disproportionate. So that's the finding. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I just think of, you know, going back to those van cams, the outcry that we saw. Oh, yeah. You know, that was, yeah, that was pretty dreadful. But, <laughs> uh, I mean, I've gotten a ticket for getting stuck. Uh, you know, you, you think the light changes and then you go into the intersection and then guess what? You're stuck and, yeah. you know. Well, yeah, that's not the way that people here usually violate the red lights. They go right through them. I mean, they don't, it's, this is, this is as outrageous a place for violating red lights. Orange doesn't mean much, mm. right? You just, you just go through. But what you raise there is the interesting part of the policy that the state is now trying to adopt. I mean, the policy that they're adopting here is based on two things, caution and fear because there have been bad experiences with this. So think about what, what the policy is that the Senate is considering, right? It's a policy to try to reduce speeds by using cameras in school zones, okay? It's a pilot project. There's only 10 school zones that will be used. Before they will be used, there's going to be a kind of data study, an engineering study that's going to look for the right ones. Then they're going to do baseline research to see what, how many you got tickets before and how many you're going to get tickets now. You probably won't. The first ones will be informational and um, and that uh, the and then the and then there will be then there will be fines. All of that really reflects the difficulties that the state and the city have had in the past of implementing these things. People don't like them, and in this way, it's very much like you found in in, in other places. People don't don't people don't like getting caught that way. In New York City, the fine for getting caught by a camera is much less than it is if you get caught by a regular in-the-flesh police officer, and they mm. think that may be, have effect. But there's all kinds of regular complaints about this, that uh, they're unfair, they're intrusive, they don't work well, they're just fundraisers for law enforcement it's, uh, uh, things, which is why this pilot project, if it ever actually gets going, um, has in it that the, the the organization that will operate it will not get paid by the ticket. They don't want to do anything. So th I guess what I'm saying is that, is that there's a couple of things that you have to consider if you're going to look at what's going to happen in Hawaii. One is the possibility of two very different types of violators. 
one that seems to respond the way you want them to respond, and the other, these super speeders, you don't know. Um, the other thing is that there is two. There are two norms. There's a norm that kind of suggests we don't like cameras, um, and uh, there's another norm that really says speeding is okay. And let's get back to the Kalaniyaniole. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm a you know this. I've probably driven this a hundred thousand times in my life. There is a norm that says it's okay. It's okay to speed over ten miles an hour, uh, or so. What that means is that you're always, you know, that, that laws are up against these kinds of norms that don't always match what the laws are trying to do. So it makes it all that much more complicated. Well, we do have these smart cars where you can set the speed limit and then it oh, yeah, beeps sure. at you if you go too fast. Sure, but that <laughs> assumes that you want to set it at the speed limit. Mm -hmm. So if you're going down, you know, through Ina Heine and you're going 43 miles an hour, eight miles over the limit, there's no way you're going to set this, the, the thing because you think that's what everybody's doing. That's called a norm. So these things become more complicated. But the fundamental thing to look at, it, it, there are two things. One, how do you get these things started, which I think, is, considering how things move here, all those there's a bunch of red flags in the law. Pilot projects, engineering studies, looking at the data. Election before. year. Election. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And they don't want to go back to the nightmare. And they certainly don't want to have cameras that make data mistakes. Okay. Yeah, that's true. And then, uh, you know, uh, uh, I know that, uh, you know, these cameras, um, well— you know, maybe they get taken out, you know, or maybe they don't work. I don't know. That's right. Uh, I mean, they're, they all, it's hard to believe they don't work, right? I mean, you have, people have different definitions of work. If you get a ticket and you don't think you deserved it, then it's not working. But there are ways to see, you know, there are technical issues. This is a, you know, this is technology. So there can be all kinds of problems. But, you know, it's not rocket science, it's traffic science. So the fundamental question to me is, once you get through all this technical stuff and you give it a try and you build it into other kinds of traffic things, does it make a difference? Does it change people's behavior? And the New York one says on some, you know, uh, there's a big category of people who may be the scariest ones, the scariest drivers, where we're not sure. Right, okay, well... You speed, your your insurance goes up. So, <laughs> yeah. But thanks so That's much, it. Neil. Yeah. <laughs> that was our contributing editor, Neil Milner, with our bi-weekly segment we call The Long View. We'll have a link to the articles he referenced on the conversation page of our website after the show. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, we hear more about a David and Goliath story. The Goliath, in this case, is the state's largest medical insurance company, HMSA. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. <laughs>